0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Masterly and miraculous, splendid and spectacular, the critics struggle to find enough words to praise Canadian author Alice Monroe. She's Michael Jordan. She's Muhammad Ali. She's Wayne Gretzky. She's Ice Cream and Sunsets. She's Anton Chekhov. And for those of you looking for your dose of Monroe, a Monrovian dose, which is kind of like getting a dose of Chopin or Cezanne, here she is. It's Alice Monroe Week here at this humble little podcast, <laughs> Alice Monroe Week, which reminds me of a garage sale or something. Alice Monroe, 25% off, all stories two for one, no no, 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 no. It's more like Alice Monroe Week, the way that Dublin has its Bloomsday, a day or, in this case, a week, for celebration and deep reflection and joy. She's such a good author. This week, we're focused in particular on her novella-length story, The Love of a Good Woman. So here's the deal. Part one came out on Monday. If you missed that, you can go listen to it now, if you'd like, but here's a little secret. That section is kind of a standalone in the novella. You can listen to this part, part two, and the next part, part three, without missing a whole lot. All you need to know to start part two is this. We are in a small town in Canada in the past, mid-20th century, a place where people don't always say what's on their mind, a place where people live with dreams and frustrations, where they try to do what's right but they're often misguided in what that means. And a couple of decades ago, some boys found a body that belonged to an eye doctor, dead in a car, submerged in a pond. That's pretty much all you need to know. You could start here if you want. You can't skip this section, and you won't want to skip part three. But if you're pressed for time, you don't need to jump back to part one. You'll be just fine starting here if you want. Okay, enough preamble. Let's do our usual thing. We'll get our theme song out of the way. And then, no, 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 wait, wait, no. It's too, stop, 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 no. Stop, stop, stop. That's not how this works. You know the cue. What are you doing today? You went too soon. Premature theme song playing. We do our usual thing. We'll get our theme song out of the way, and then wait, stop. What? Stop. Silence. Not off to a great start here, production-wise. My producer, he's trying to do this remotely, so let's cut him some slack. Have you forgotten how this works? We don't say theme song to cue the theme song. We say, on the history of literature. And then, no, no, that's too soon, (laughs) that's too soon, Stop, stop. Okay, so here's how this works. We are going to say some words that will cue a certain song. The words are the name of the show. Is that cryptic enough? My God. We'll do that. We'll get this right. Don't worry, listeners. The simplest possible thing to get right. We've done this 200 times now. More than that, actually. And we're still... You see why this is hard for me? It's hard for me because I'm working with you. Don't think too hard. You're overthinking. Except you don't learn. You're overthinking and underthinking all at once. Imagine where we'd be if you could just turn that around. Instead of overthinking and underthinking. Imagine if you could just underthink and overthink, but at the right times. Okay. We will get this elementary part of the show right eventually. Then we'll do some emails. We have some good ones today. We'll set up part two of our story, and then we will listen to part two of our story, which is The Love of a Woman by Alice Munro. Okay? Okay. That's all coming up on the History of Literature. Theme song okay there we go now we're cooking now we're cooking with gas that's one of my favorite expressions cooking when cooking just isn't good enough cooking with gas wow that's powerful stuff. Or it was once upon a time when you had to heat water by rubbing a few sticks together. What would they say nowadays? Ah, now we're cooking with infrared intensity. Now we're cooking with microwave radiation. That's not better, is it? Cooking with gas is here to stay, hopefully. So let's get going. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. Did I say that the Alice Monroe story was the love of a woman? or for the love of a woman. I might have misspoke there in the introduction. I was a little frazzled given all the goings-on here at the Jack Wilson Studio. Got an orchestra with all these brass instruments. They're playing through their masks. Heroic stuff from the Jack Wilson Orchestra. So here we are. I couldn't be happier that you chose to spend some time with us today. This story Really kicks it into a higher gear today in part two. It starts cooking with convection. <laughs> That's not better. Cooking in papillote. That's actually better. It's a slow cook. A slow, slow cook. That's Alice Monroe for you. Alice Monroe is the slow cooker of short story writers. You put these beautiful ingredients into the slow cooker, some spices some tough cuts of meat, some hardened root vegetables. And they just slowly roast, slowly bake, slowly, slowly start to soften. And they start giving up their juices and melding all together. And finally, you remove the lid and the wave of steam curls out. No, it blasts out. The wave of steam blasts out. And hits you in the face with aromatic intensity. And you've been smelling this delicious smell all day. It's been working on you for a long time without you knowing it, and now you get to eat. That's Alice Monroe. That's our story today. But before we get there, let's hear some emails. First up, a listener in the Ukraine subject Samuel Peeps. Hello, Jack. I'm a mid-40s Canadian English teacher here in Kiev, Ukraine, and due to the drudgery of this international hostage-taking called the quarantine, I've recently found your podcast. In fact, I just finished listening to the Samuel Pepys edition over a morning cup of coffee and two pipes of tobacco while watching the rain fall from my balcony, and really enjoyed it. Wow, I bet! I bet you did. What a great image. Two pipes of tobacco and a morning cup of coffee and the rain. That is some kind of life. Quarantining has its advantages sometimes. I've been a desultory reader for most of my life, but have recently begun trying to shrug off the convenience of YouTube by wiping the dust off my books and once again enjoy the written word. What is more, I believe many of the restrictions here in Kiev have been lifted today, which means one of my favorite bookstores along Kreshatak. Is that right? (laughs) Kreshatak Street will open, reopen to my delight, and I'll go in the rain and visit it in a few hours. Certainly, the many suggestions you and Mike have given will be my guide in finding something new to read. Thank you. You've already covered my two favorite writers, Dostoevsky and Hemingway, which I was pleased to discover. In the future, I would be curious to hear you discuss my favorite poet, Philip Larkin, a controversial figure since the release of his personal letters, I realize, but a superior talent nevertheless. Vladimir Nabokov would be another I'd love to hear, although you may have already, and I simply missed it in my search. As a possible podcast topic, how about you and Mike do a top five underrated novels? Regardless, keep up the good work, and I'll be listening. Brian in Kiev. Wow! Brian, thank you so much for the email. I'd have to say, Kiev sounds very appealing from your email. I miss those days when a bookstore was my favorite thing to do in any city I was in. Arrive in a city, check out the bookstore, see what's there, bring a little treasure home. That's good living. And Philip Larkin is so good. He's one of my favorites. We'll definitely do a show on him at some point. There's a lot to cover with him. He had a fascinating life. And it's one of my favorite literary headlines of all time. Now, well, I may have shared this before. I'm going to share it again. Some of you may know Mr. Larkin was the librarian in Hull for years and years. And he was known as this sort of cranky little English poet, very well-respected viewed as kind of an English garden of a person, you know, like a train spotter or something. Quirky English feature, a little embarrassing, a little quiet, a little pinched, shall we say. And then his letters come out after his death. And his papers and interviews and the details of his life rolled out. And it turned out that he had a lot of sex on his mind. And in his life, he was more of a Lothario than anyone thought. He wasn't just nerdy and shy. He was kind of out there, putting himself out there. And the headline when all that news broke was Don Juan in Hull. (laughs) Oh, I still love that headline. So good. So yes, (laughs) we will do Larkin. And top five underrated novels is a good one. Good idea although it might be a little tough to pick. And then there's Nabokov. We did do one with Nabokov and Freud, but hold that thought for a minute. Because next we will hear from a listener who hinted in a postscript that he may have some friends listening and he wants to remain anonymous even though he would like me to read the letter. So I will call him Z. Subject, the most quoted author of the History of Literature podcast. Hi, Jack. I have a game for you. The sort of game that you like to play with Mike, I guess. Who would you say is your most quoted author? This is an easy one. At least four out of ten times he is mentioned on your podcast. Anyway, you can check the answer at the bottom of this email. Many times you have borrowed his words to shed some light on other authors' works, but although he is such an important figure in your podcast, he does not have an episode of his own. Well, there is one which I enjoyed very much about his relationship with Freud. And there is the episode where you talk about a book on Lolita and Dracula, if I remember correctly. But there is not an episode in which you truly delve into his books and his life. I think he deserves that for being the most quoted author of the podcast. And there is also Virginia Woolf. Well, I know this is starting to sound like a rant, but bear with me. The next paragraph will be more nice. (laughs) Okay, I'll look forward to that. (laughs) She is also mentioned a lot of times in your episodes. In fact, she was on the front line of your British army. And although she has two episodes dedicated to her, very interesting episodes, in none of them, you really talk about her books. What do you feel about them? Which passages strike you the most? I would really love to hear that. But don't worry, I will continue to be your friend, even if you do not do so. I think that you already have a grand plan prepared for those two. Before writing this, I decided to avoid giving you suggestions of other authors that I I would like to hear on the podcast. For example, I wanted to make my case on why Olaf Stapledon, who Virginia Woolf admired, would make a great episode. But I believe you already have too many suggestions, and there is almost nothing I could recommend to you that you do not know about, except perhaps the ones in my mother tongue, Portuguese. Jack, your podcast is amazing. I believe that 100 years from now, there will be sensorial podcasts or whatever they will have in the future about how great is your podcast. The episode about Flaubert was itself a true work of art. I cried at the end. Your friend, Z. Answer to quiz, Nabokov. Well, Z, thank you very much. And wow two votes for Nabokov that came in in the span of a few minutes. You and Brian in Kiev were both feeling the same absence. I will do an episode on Mr. Nabokov. We also talked about him in the Great Literary Feuds episode, I'm pretty sure, as he and Bunny Wilson went at it. I read an entire book about that feud, and it was very good. But yes, you are right. He and Virginia Woolf have both been prominent, but in kind of a tangential way. They are on the list for fuller treatment. Oscar Wilde is in that category, too. You have just enough to tide you over so far in the archive. But and Ford Maddox Ford, there's another one. Just a little to wet your whistle. But we should do more than that, hopefully soon. A lot of authors to get to. <laughs> We're trying. Many thanks to you and Brian for those wonderful emails. They made my day. So let's take a quick break and come back with our setup to our story, which is part two of Alice Munro's masterpiece, The Love of a Good Woman. Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. So I made quite a bit out of not needing to listen to the first part of the story. I don't know if that will be viewed as blasphemous to say that we can skip the part we heard last time. I think it's gorgeous writing. I think it is essential. It sets the tone. It gives you a flavor of the town, and it starts some of those themes that you will need to hear. What are those themes? I think the main one is this. Not talking. Not revealing. Here the boys have the biggest secret imaginable. They've seen a dead body, and they come home and one thing and another happens, and hours go by, and nothing gets said. That's astonishing when you think about it. It's very Midwestern. I'm going to add my small-town Wisconsin world and sensibility to Ms. Monroe's in Ontario, because it's not so different, Wisconsin and Canada. it feels They feel similar to me. Here's a story of a friend of mine, a friend of mine from Philadelphia. He's very East Coast in his sensibility. The two of us went to Go get fish down at the docks here in D.C. We were going to have lunch. And there was no line. I feel like I've told this story before, too. But it tells you what you need to know. So I'll tell it again. There was no line. Just a loose grouping of people waiting to order their fish at the fish counter. And he ordered his, and I was probably next, chronologically. But it was a group of people. Some other people stepped forward, and the person behind the counter looked over at them. And so they were ordering what they wanted, telling the, (laughs) putting in their order. And my friend raised his hand and waved it and said, no, 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 this guy was next. And he pointed at me. And I felt kind of ridiculous because he had spoken up for me. Like, why couldn't I do that for myself? Why hadn't I? I didn't know. But also I was a little surprised at how shocked I was. Like, what? What? (laughs) <laughs> no, it wasn't clear. It wasn't clear that it was me. The clerk looked at someone else. That's okay. They looked past me. That's okay. Who am I to demand their attention? Who am I to be next? Who am I to speak up? I was quite comfortable just standing there, waiting, listening, watching, being patient, and nothing made my friend less comfortable. For him, it was an assault on reason and rationality. If you're next, you go next. And if someone's confused about that, you open your mouth and say words and straighten them out. It's not being a jerk or a loudmouth. It's just part of navigating your way through the world. Well, not all of us navigate that way. So these boys in this story don't. It's not my instinct either. Nor is it the instinct of the people I grew up with. But here's the problem with that approach. You submerge a lot of yourself. Waiting for a lunch, a few extra minutes, that's pretty small potatoes. But what if it's stepping aside and letting others take a promotion that you deserve? What if it's not marrying the person you want to marry? What if it's not pursuing the career you really want to pursue? What if it's not being the person That you know, deep down, you should be. That's where this part of the story takes us. We're not talking about some boys who spend a few hours not saying something, as remarkable as that is, given what they've just seen. We're talking about not saying things for years. We're about to hear two women, Mrs. Quinn, who is dying, and Enid, a saintly caretaker. Both of them have lived a bottled-up life in different ways. As Mrs. Quinn is dying, she starts to reveal secrets to Enid. I won't spoil more of the story. It's just what I want you to focus on, the frame of mind that I want you to be in as you're listening. Think about your own life. Have you always gotten what you wanted? Have you let yourself get what you wanted? Have you been honest with yourself? And have you kept secrets? whether that's from others or maybe even yourself. How much of your life has been what you really wanted it to be? How much did you sacrifice because that seemed like an easier decision to be kind, to be self-effacing, to be helpful, to help someone else, to be good? Was it what you thought it would be? Did being good being self-effacing, erasing yourself, did it have unintended consequences? Did it let you be your truest self? Where do these secrets and these self-deceptions go? Do they just disappear without consequence? Do you absorb them into yourself without consequence? Or do they come back? Do they spill out? Do they fester? Until they emerge in some dramatic way. That's the world of the story. So let's listen. Part two of Alice Munro's The Love of a Good Woman. After this. <laughs> failure. Clomerulonephritis, Enid wrote in her notebook. It was the first case that she had ever seen. The fact was that Mrs. Quinn's kidneys were failing, and nothing could be done about it. Her kidneys were drying up and turning into hard and useless granular lumps. Her urine at present was scanty and had a smoky look, and the smell that came out on her breath and through her skin was acrid and ominous. And there was another— fainter smell, like rotted fruit, that seemed to Enid related to the pale lavender-brown stains appearing on her body. Her legs twitched in spasms of sudden pain, and her skin was subject to a violent itching, so that Enid had to rub her with ice. She wrapped the ice in towels and pressed the packs to the spots in torment. "'How do you contract that kind of a disease anyhow?' said Mrs. Quinn's sister-in-law. Her name was Mrs. Green, Olive Green." It had never occurred to her how that would sound, she said, until she got married and all of a sudden everybody was laughing at it. She lived on a farm a few miles away, out on the highway, and every few days she came and took the sheets and towels and nightdresses home to wash. She did the children's washing as well, brought everything back freshly ironed and folded. She even ironed the ribbons on the nightdresses. Enid was grateful to her. She had been on jobs where she had to do the laundry herself, or, worse still, loaded onto her mother, who would pay to have it done in town. Not wanting to offend, but seeing which way the questions were tending, she said, "'It's hard to tell.'" "'Because you hear one thing and another,' Mrs. Green said. "'You hear that sometimes a woman might take some pills.'" They get these pills to take for when their period is late, and if they take them just like the doctor says and for a good purpose, that's fine, but if they take too many and for a bad purpose, their kidneys are wrecked. Am I right? I've never come in contact with a case like that, Enid said. Mrs. Green was a tall, stout woman. Like her brother Rupert, who was Mrs. Quinn's husband, she had a round, snub-nosed, agreeably wrinkled face, the kind that Enid's mother called potato Irish. But behind Rupert's good-humored expression, there was wariness and withholding. And behind Mrs. Green's, there was yearning. Enid did not know for what. To the simplest conversation, Mrs. Green brought a huge demand. Maybe it was just a yearning for news. News of something momentous. An event. Of course, an event was coming. Something momentous, at least in this family. Mrs. Quinn was going to die at the age of twenty-seven. That was the age she gave herself. Enid would have put some years on it, but once an illness had progressed this far, age was hard to guess. When her kidneys stopped working altogether, her heart would give out and she would die. The doctor had said to Enid, this'll take you into the summer, but the chances are you'll get some kind of a holiday before the hot weather's over. Rupert met her when he went up north, Mrs. Green said. He went off by himself. He worked in the bush up there. She had some kind of a job in a hotel. I'm not sure what. Chambermaid job. She wasn't raised up there, though. She says she was raised in an orphanage in Montreal. She can't help that. You'd expect her to speak French. But if she does, she don't let on. Enid said, An interesting life. You can say that again. An interesting life, said Enid. Sometimes she couldn't help it. She tried a joke where it had hardly a hope of working she raised her eyebrows encouragingly, and Mrs. Green did smile. But was she hurt? That was just the way Rupert would smile, in high school, warding off some possible mockery. He never had any kind of a girlfriend before that, said Mrs. Green. Enid had been in the same class as Rupert, though she did not mention that to Mrs. Green. She felt some embarrassment now because he was one of the boys, in fact, the main one, that she and her girlfriends had teased and tormented picked on, as they used to say. They had picked on Rupert, following him up the street, calling out, Hello, Rupert. Hello, Rupert. Putting him into a state of agony, watching his neck go red. Rupert's got scarlet fever, they would say. Rupert, you should be quarantined. And they would pretend that one of them, Enid, Joan McAuliffe, Mary and Denny, had a case on him. She wants to speak to you, Rupert. Why don't you ever ask her out? You could phone her up at least. She's dying to talk to you. They did not really expect him to respond to these pleading overtures, but what joy if he had. He would have been rejected in short order, and the story broadcast all over school. Why? Why did they treat him this way? Long to humiliate him. Simply because they could impossible that he would have forgotten, but he treated Enid as if she were a new acquaintance, his wife's nurse, come into his house from anywhere at all, and Enid took her cue from him. Things had been unusually well arranged here to spare her extra work. Rupert slept at Mrs. Green's house and ate his meals there. The two little girls could have been there as well, but it would have meant putting them into another school. There was nearly a month to go before school was out for the summer. Rupert came into the house in the evenings and spoke to his children. "'Are you being good girls?' he said. "'Show Daddy what you made with your blocks,' said Enid. "'Show Daddy your pictures in the coloring book.' The blocks, the crayons, the coloring books were all provided by Enid. She had phoned her mother and asked her to see what things she could find in the old trunks. Her mother had done that and brought along as well an old book of cut-out dolls, which she had collected from someone.' princesses Elizabeth and Margaret rose and their many outfits. Enid hadn't been able to get the little girls to say thank you until she put all these things on a high shelf and announced that they would stay there till thank you was said. Lois and Sylvie were seven and six years old and as wild as little barn cats. Rupert didn't ask where the playthings came from. He told his daughters to be good girls and asked Enid if there was anything she needed from town. Once she told him that she had replaced the light bulb in the cellarway and that he could get her some spare bulbs. I could have done that, he said. I don't have any trouble with light bulbs, said Enid, or fuses or knocking in nails. My mother and I have done without a man around the house for a long time now. She meant to tease a little, to be friendly, but it didn't work. Finally, Rupert would ask about his wife, and Enid would say that her blood pressure was down slightly or that she had eaten and kept down part of an omelet for supper, or that the ice packs seemed to ease her itchy skin, and she was sleeping better. And Rupert would say that if she was sleeping, he'd better not go in. Enid said, nonsense. To see her husband would do a woman more good than to have a little doze. She took the children up to bed then, to give man and wife a time of privacy. But Rupert never stayed more than a few minutes. And when Enid came back downstairs and went into the front room, now the sick room, to ready the patient for the night, Mrs. Quinn would be lying back against the pillows, looking agitated, but not dissatisfied. Doesn't hang around here very long, does he? Mrs. Quinn would say. Makes me laugh. Ha ha ha, how are you? Ha ha ha, off we go. Why don't we take her out and throw her on the manure pile? Why don't we just dump her out like a dead cat? That's what he's thinking, isn't he? I doubt it said Enid, bringing the basin and towels, the rubbing alcohol and the baby powder. I doubt it, said Mrs. Quinn quite viciously, but she submitted readily enough to having her nightgown removed, her hair smoothed back from her face, a towel slid under her hips. Enid was used to people making a fuss about being naked, even when they were very old or very ill. Sometimes she would have to tease them or badger them into common sense. Do you think I haven't seen any bottom parts before? she would say. Bottom parts, top parts, it's pretty boring after a while. You know, there's just the two ways we're made. But Mrs. Quinn was without shame, opening her legs and raising herself a bit to make the job easier. She was a little bird-boned woman, queerly shaped now, with her swollen abdomen and limbs and her breasts shrunk to tiny pouches with dried currant nipples. Swole up like some kind of pig, Mrs. Quinn said, except for my tits, and they always were kind of useless. I never had no big udders on me like you. Don't you get sick of the sight of me? Won't you be glad when I'm dead? If I felt like that, I wouldn't be here, said Enid. Good riddance to bad rubbish, said Mrs. Quinn. That's what you'll all say. Good riddance to bad rubbish. I'm no use to him anymore, am I? I'm no use to any man. He goes out of here every night, and he goes to pick up women, doesn't he? As far as I know, he goes to his sister's house. As far as you know, but you don't know much. Enid thought she knew what this meant, this spite and venom, the energy saved for ranting. Mrs. Quinn was flailing about for an enemy. Sick people grew to resent well people, and sometimes that was true of husbands and wives, or even of mothers and their children. Both husband and children, in Mrs. Quinn's case. On a Saturday morning enid called lois and sylvie from their games under the porch to come and see their mother looking pretty mrs Quinn had just had her morning wash and was in a clean nightgown with her fine sparse fair hair brushed and held back by a blue ribbon enid took a supply of these ribbons with her when she went to nurse a female patient also a bottle of cologne and a cake of scented soap she did look pretty or you could see at least that she had once been pretty with her wide forehead and cheekbones, they almost punched the skin now, like china doorknobs, and her large greenish eyes and childish translucent teeth and small stubborn chin. The children came into the room obediently, if unenthusiastically. Mrs. Quinn said, keep them off my bed, they're filthy. They just want to see you, said Enid. Well, now they've seen me, said Mrs. Quinn, now they can go. This behavior didn't seem to surprise or disappoint the children. They looked at Enid, and Enid said, All right, now your mother better have a rest. And they ran out and slammed the kitchen door. Can't you get them to quit doing that? Mrs. Quinn said. Every time they do it, it's like a brick hits me in my chest. You would think these two daughters of hers were a pair of rowdy orphans, wished on her for an indefinite visit. But that was the way some people were before they settled down to their dying, and sometimes even up to the event itself. People of a gentler nature, it would seem, than Mrs. Quinn, might say that they knew how much their brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, and children had always hated them, how much of a disappointment they had been to others, and others had been to them, and how glad they knew everybody would be to see them gone. They might say this at the end of peaceful, useful lives, in the midst of loving families, where there was no explanation at all for such fits. And usually the fits passed. But often, too, in the last weeks or even days of life, there was mulling over of old feuds and slights or whimpering about some unjust punishment suffered seventy years earlier. Once a woman had asked Enid to bring her a willow platter from the cupboard, and Enid had thought that she wanted the comfort of looking at this one pretty possession for the last time. But it turned out that she wanted to use her last surprising strength to smash it against the bedpost. Now I know my sister's never going to get her hands on that, she said. And often people remarked that their visitors were only coming to gloat and that the doctor was responsible for their sufferings. They detested the sight of Enid herself for her sleepless strength and patient hands and the way the juices of life were so admirably balanced and flowing in her. Enid was used to that, and she was able to understand the trouble they were in, the trouble of dying, and also the trouble of their lives that sometimes overshadowed that. But with Mrs. Quinn, she was at a loss. It was not just that she couldn't supply comfort here. It was that she couldn't want to. "'She could not conquer her dislike of this doomed, miserable young woman. "'She disliked this body that she had to wash and powder "'and placate with ice and alcohol rubs. "'She understood now what people meant "'when they said that they hated sickness and sick bodies. "'She understood the women who had said to her, "'I don't know how you do it. "'I could never be a nurse. "'That's the one thing I could never be. "'She disliked this particular body, "'all the particular signs of its disease.' The smell of it and the discoloration, the malignant looking little nipples, and the pathetic ferret like teeth. She saw all this as the sign of a willed corruption. She was as bad as Mrs. Green, sniffing out rampant impurity in spite of being a nurse who knew better, and in spite of its being her job and surely her nature to be compassionate. She didn't know why this was happening. Mrs. Quinn reminded her somewhat of girls she had known in high school, cheaply dressed sickly-looking girls with dreary futures who still displayed a hard-faced satisfaction with themselves. They lasted only a year or two. They got pregnant. Most of them got married. Enid had nursed some of them in later years, in home childbirth, and found their confidence exhausted, and their bold streak turned into meekness or even piety. She was sorry for them, even when she remembered how determined they had been to get what they had got. Mrs. Quinn was a harder case— Mrs. Quinn might crack and crack, but there would be nothing but sullen mischief, nothing but rot inside her. Worse even than the fact that Enid should feel this revulsion was the fact that Mrs. Quinn knew it. No patience or gentleness or cheerfulness that Enid could summon would keep Mrs. Quinn from knowing, and Mrs. Quinn made knowing it her triumph. Good riddance to bad rubbish. When Enid was twenty years old, and had almost finished her nurse's training. Her father was dying in the Wally Hospital. That was when he said to her, I don't know as I care for this career of yours. I don't want you working in a place like this. Enid bent over him, and asked what sort of place he thought he was in. It's only the Wally Hospital, she said. I know that, said her father, sounding as calm and reasonable as he had always done. He was an insurance and real estate agent. I know what I'm talking about. Promise me you won't, Promise you what? said Enid. You won't do this kind of work, her father said. She could not get any further explanation out of him. He tightened up his mouth as if her questioning disgusted him. All he would say was, Promise. What is this all about? Enid asked her mother, and her mother said, Oh, go ahead, go ahead and promise him. What difference is it going to make? Enid thought this a shocking thing to say, but made no comment. It was consistent with her mother's way of looking at a lot of things. I'm not going to promise anything I don't understand, she said. I'm probably not going to promise anything anyway. But if you know what he's talking about, you ought to tell me. It's just this idea he's got now, her mother said. He's got an idea that nursing makes a woman coarse. Enid said, Coarse. Her mother said that the part of nursing her father objected to was the familiarity nurses had with men's bodies. Her father thought, He had decided that such familiarity would change a girl, and furthermore that it would change the way men thought about that girl. It would spoil her good chances and give her a lot of other chances that were not so good. Some men would lose interest, and others would become interested in the wrong way. "'I suppose it's all mixed up with wanting you to get married,' her mother said. "'Too bad if it is,' said Enid. But she ended up promising. And her mother said, "'Well, I hope that makes you happy.' not makes him happy, makes you. It seemed that her mother had known before Enid did just how tempting this promise would be. The deathbed promise, the self-denial, the wholesale sacrifice, and the more absurd the better. This was what she had given into, and not for love of her father either, her mother implied, but for the thrill of it, sheer noble perversity." If he'd asked you to give up something you didn't care one way or the other about, you'd probably have told him nothing doing, her mother said. If, for instance, he'd asked you to give up wearing lipstick, you'd still be wearing it. Enid listened to this with a patient expression. Did you pray about it? Her, said her mother sharply. Enid said yes. She withdrew from nursing school. She stayed at home and kept busy. There was enough money that she did not have to work. In fact, her mother had not wanted Enid to go into nursing in the first place, claiming that it was something poor girls did. It was a way out for girls whose parents couldn't keep them or send them to college. Enid did not remind her of this inconsistency. She painted a fence. She tied up the rose bushes for winter. She learned to bake and she learned to play bridge, taking her father's place in the weekly games her mother played with Mr. and Mrs. Willans from next door. In no time at all, she became as Mr. Willen said, a scandalously good player. He took to turning up with chocolates or a pink rose for her to make up for his own inadequacies as a partner. She went skating in the winter evenings. She played badminton. She had never lacked friends, and she didn't now. Most of the people who had been in the last year of high school with her were finishing college now or were already working at a distance as teachers or nurses or chartered accountants but she made friends with others who had dropped out before senior year to work in banks or stores or offices to become plumbers or milliners. The girls in this group were dropping like flies. As they said of each other, they were dropping into matrimony. Enid was an organizer of bridal showers and a help at Trousseau teas. In a couple of years would come the christenings, where she could expect to be a favorite godmother. Children not related to her would grow up calling her Aunt. And she was already a sort of honorary daughter to women of her mother's age and older, the only young woman who had time for the book club and the horticultural society. So, quickly and easily, still in her youth, she was slipping into this essential, central, yet isolated role. But in fact, it had been her role all along. In high school, she was always the class secretary or class social convener. She was well-liked and high-spirited and well-dressed and good-looking, but she was slightly set apart. She had friends who were boys, but never a boyfriend. She did not seem to have made a choice this way, but she was not worried about it either. She had been preoccupied with her ambition to be a missionary at one embarrassing stage and then to be a nurse. She had never thought of nursing as just something to do until she got married. Her hope was to be good and do good and not necessarily in the orderly, customary, wifely way. At New Year's, she went to the dance in the town hall. The man who danced with her most often and escorted her home and pressed her hand good night was the manager of the creamery, a man in his forties, never married, an excellent dancer, an avuncular friend to girls unlikely to find partners. No woman ever took him seriously. Maybe you should take a business course, her mother said, or why shouldn't you go to college? Where the men might be more appreciative, she was surely thinking, I'm too old, Said Enid. Her mother laughed. That only shows how young you are, she said. She seemed relieved to discover that her daughter had a touch of folly natural to her age, that she could think twenty one was at a vast distance from eighteen. I'm not going to troop in with kids out of high school, Enid said. I mean it. What do you want to get rid of me for, anyway? I'm fine here. This sulkiness or sharpness also seemed to please and reassure her mother. But after a moment she sighed and said, You'll be surprised how fast the years go by. That August, there were a lot of cases of measles and a few of polio at the same time. The doctor who had looked after Enid's father and had observed her competence around the hospital asked her if she would be willing to help out for a while, nursing people at home. She said that she would think about it. You mean pray, her mother said, and Enid's face took on a stubborn, secretive expression that in another girl's case might have had to do with meeting her boyfriend. That promise, she said to her mother the next day. That was about working in a hospital, wasn't it? Her mother said that she had understood it that way, yes. And with graduating and being a registered nurse? Yes, yes. So if there were people who needed nursing at home, who couldn't afford to go to the hospital or did not want to go, and if Enid went into their houses to nurse them, not as a registered nurse, but as what they called a practical nurse, she would hardly be breaking her promise, would she? And since most of those needing her care would be children or women having babies or old people dying, there would not be much danger of the coarsening effect, would there? If the only men you get to see are men who are never going to get out of bed again, you have a point, said her mother. But she could not keep from adding that what all this meant was that Enid had decided to give up the possibility of a decent job in a hospital in order to do miserable back-breaking work in miserable primitive houses for next to no money. Enid would find herself pumping water from contaminated wells and breaking ice in winter wash basins and battling flies in summer and using an outdoor toilet, scrub boards and coal oil lamps instead of washing machines and electricity, trying to look after sick people in those conditions and cope with housework and poor, weaselly children as well. But if that is your object in life, she said, I can see that the worse I make it sound, the more determined you get to do it. The only thing is, I'm going to ask you for a couple of promises myself. Promise me you'll boil the water you drink, and you won't marry a farmer. Enid said, of all the crazy ideas. That was sixteen years ago. During the first of those years, people got poorer and poorer. There were more and more of them who could not afford to go to the hospital, and the houses where Enid worked had often deteriorated almost to the state that her mother had described. Sheets and diapers had to be washed by hand in houses where the washing machine had broken down and could not be repaired, or the electricity had been turned off, or where there had never been any electricity in the first place. Enid did not work without pay, because that would not have been fair to the other women who did the same kind of nursing, and who did not have the same options as she did. But she gave most of the money back, in the form of children's shoes and winter coats and trips to the dentist and Christmas toys. Her mother went around canvassing her friends for old baby cots and high chairs and blankets and worn-out sheets, which she herself ripped up and hemmed to make diapers. Everybody said how proud she must be of Enid, and she said yes, she surely was. But sometimes it's a devil of a lot of work, she said, this being the mother of a saint. Then came the war and the great shortage of doctors and nurses, and Enid was more welcome than ever as she was for a while after the war, with so many babies being born. It was only now, with the hospitals being enlarged and many farms getting prosperous, that it looked as if her responsibilities might dwindle away to the care of those who had bizarre and hopeless afflictions, or were so irredeemably cranky that hospitals had thrown them out. This summer, there was a great downpour of rain every few days, and then the sun came out very hot, glittering off the drenched leaves and grass. Early mornings were full of mist, they were so close, here, to the river, and even when the mist cleared off, you could not see very far in any direction, because of the overflow and density of summer. The heavy trees, the bushes all bound up with wild grapevines and Virginia creeper, the crops of corn and barley, and wheat and hay. Everything was ahead of itself, as people said. The hay was ready to cut in June, and Rupert had to rush to get it into the barn before a rain spoiled it. He came into the house later and later in the evenings, having worked as long as the light lasted. One night when he came, the house was in darkness, except for a candle burning on the kitchen table. Enid hurried to unhook the screen door. Power out, said Rupert. Enid said, shh. She whispered to him that she was letting the children sleep downstairs, because the upstairs rooms were so hot. She had pushed the chairs together and made beds on them with quilts and pillows, and of course— she had had to turn the lights out so that they could get to sleep. She had found a candle in one of the drawers, and that was all she needed to see to write by in her notebook. They'll always remember sleeping here, she said. You always remember the times when you were a child, and you slept somewhere different. He set down a box that contained a ceiling fan for the sick room. He had been into Wally to buy it. He had also bought a newspaper, which he handed to Enid thought you might like to know what's going on in the world he said. She spread the paper out beside her notebook on the table. There was a picture of a couple of dogs playing in a fountain. It says there's a heat wave, she said. Isn't it nice to find out about it? Rupert was carefully lifting the fan out of its box. That'll be wonderful, she said. It's cooled off in there now, but it'll be such a comfort to her tomorrow. I'll be over early to put it up, he said. Then he asked how his wife had been that day. Enid said that the pains in her legs had been easing off, and the new pills the doctor had her on seemed to be letting her get some rest. The only thing is, she goes to sleep so soon, she said. It makes it hard for you to get a visit. Better she gets the rest, Rupert said. This whispered conversation reminded Enid of conversations in high school, when they were both in their senior year, and that earlier teasing or cruel flirtation or whatever it was had long been abandoned. All that last year, Rupert had sat in the seat behind hers, and they had often spoken to each other briefly, always to some immediate purpose. Have you got an ink eraser? How do you spell incriminate? Where is the Tyrrhenian sea? Usually it was Enid, half turning in her seat and able only to sense, not see, how close Rupert was, who started these conversations. She did want to borrow an eraser, she was in need of information, but also she wanted to be sociable and she wanted to make amends. She felt ashamed of the way she and her friends had treated him. It would do no good to apologize. That would just embarrass him all over again. He was only at ease when he sat behind her, and knew that she could not look him in the face. If they met on the street, he would look away until the last minute, then mutter the faintest greeting while she sang out, Hello, Rupert! and heard an echo of the old, tormenting tones she wanted to banish. But when he actually laid a finger on her shoulder— tapping for attention. When he bent forward, almost touching, or maybe really touching, she could not tell for sure, her thick hair, that was wild even in a bob. Then she felt forgiven. In a way, she felt honored, restored to seriousness, and to respect. Where, where exactly, is the Tyrenian Sea? She wondered if he remembered anything at all of that now. She separated the back and front parts of the paper— Margaret Truman was visiting England, and had curtsied to the royal family. The king's doctors were trying to cure his Burgers disease with vitamin E. She offered the front part to Rupert. I'm going to look at the crossword, she said. I like to do the crossword. It relaxes me at the end of the day. Rupert sat down and began to read the paper, and she asked him if he would like a cup of tea. Of course, he said not to bother, and she went ahead and made it anyway understanding that this reply might as well be yes in country speech. It's a South American theme, she said, looking at the crossword, Latin American theme. First across is a musical garment. A musical garment? Garment. A lot of letters. Oh, oh, I'm lucky tonight. Cape Horn. You see how silly they are, these things, she said, and rose and poured the tea. If he did remember, did he hold anything against her? Maybe her blithe friendliness in their senior year had been as unwelcome, as superior seeming to him, as that early taunting? When she first saw him in this house, she thought that he had not changed much. He had been a tall, solid, round-faced boy, and he was a tall, heavy, round-faced man. He had worn his hair so short, always, that it didn't make much difference that there was less of it now, and that it had turned from light brown to grey-brown. A permanent sunburn had taken the place of his blushes, and whatever troubled him, and showed in his face, might have been just the same old trouble, the problem of occupying space in the world and having a name that people could call you by, being somebody they thought they could know. She thought of him sitting in the senior class, a small class by that time, in five years the unstudious, the carefree, and the indifferent had been weeded out, leaving these overgrown, grave, and docile children, learning trigonometry learning Latin. What kind of life did they think they were preparing for? What kind of people did they think they were going to be? She could see the dark green, softened cover of a book called History of the Renaissance and Reformation. It was second-hand or tenth-hand. Nobody ever bought a new textbook. Inside were written all the names of the previous owners, some of whom were middle-aged housewives or merchants around the town. You could not imagine them learning these things or underlining Edict of Nantes, with red ink and writing N.B. in the margin. Edict of Nantes. The very uselessness, the exotic nature of the things in those books and in those students' heads, in her own head then and Rupert's, made Enid feel a tenderness and wonder. It wasn't that they had meant to be something that they hadn't become. Nothing like that. Rupert couldn't have imagined anything but farming this farm. It was a good farm, and he was an only son— and she herself had ended up doing exactly what she must have wanted to do. You couldn't say that they had chosen the wrong lives, or chosen against their will, or not understood their choices. Just that they had not understood how time would pass, and leave them not more, but maybe a little less, than what they used to be. Bread of the Amazon, she said. Bread of the Amazon. Rupert said, Manioc, Enid counted. Seven letters, she said. Seven. He said, cassava? Cassava? That's a double S. Cassava. Mrs. Quinn became more capricious daily about her food. Sometimes she said she wanted toast or bananas with milk on them. One day she said peanut butter cookies. Enid prepared all these things. The children could eat them anyway. And when they were ready, Mrs. Quinn could not stand the look or the smell of them. Even Jell-O had a smell she could not stand. Some days she hated all noise. She would not even have the fan going. Other days, she wanted the radio on. She wanted the station that played requests for birthdays and anniversaries and called people up to ask them questions. If you got the answer right, you want a trip to Niagara Falls, a tank full of gas, or a load of groceries, or tickets to a movie. It's all fixed, Mrs. Quinn said. They just pretend to call somebody up. They're in the next room and already got the answer told to them. I used to know somebody that worked for a radio. That's the truth. On these days, her pulse was rapid. She talked very fast in a light, breathless voice. What kind of car is that your mother's got? She said. It's a maroon-colored car, said Enid. What make? Said Mrs. Quinn. Enid said she did not know which was the truth. She had known, but she had forgotten. Was it new when she got it? Yes, said Enid. Yes, but that was three or four years ago. She lives in that big rock house next door to Willens's. Yes, said Enid. How many rooms it got? Sixteen? Too many. Did you go to Mr. Willins's funeral when he got drownded? Enid said, no. I'm not much for funerals. I was supposed to go. I wasn't awfully sick then. I was going with Hervey's up the highway. They said I could get a ride with them, and then her mother and her sister wanted to go, and there wasn't enough room in back. "'Then Clive and Olive went in the truck, "'and I could have scrunched up in their front seat, "'but they never thought to ask me. "'Do you think he drowned himself?' Enid thought of Mr. Willans handing her a rose, "'his jokey gallantry that made the nerves of her teeth ache "'as from too much sugar. "'I don't know. I wouldn't think so. "'Did him and Mrs. Willans get along all right?' "'As far as I know, they got along beautifully.' ''Oh, is that so?'' said Mrs. Quinn, trying to imitate Enid's reserved tone. ''Beautifully!'' Enid slept on the couch in Mrs. Quinn's room. Mrs. Quinn's devastating itch had almost disappeared, as had her need to urinate. She slept through most of the night, though she would have spells of harsh and angry breathing. What woke Enid up and kept her awake was a trouble of her own. She had begun to have ugly dreams.'' These were unlike any dreams she had ever had before. She used to think that a bad dream was one of finding herself in an unfamiliar house where the rooms kept changing and there was always more work to do than she could handle, work undone that she thought she had done, innumerable distractions. And then, of course, she had what she thought of as romantic dreams, in which some man would have his arm around her or even be embracing her. It might be a stranger or a man she knew sometimes a man whom it was quite a joke to think of in that way. These dreams made her thoughtful or a little sad, but relieved in some way to know that such feelings were possible for her. They could be embarrassing, but were nothing, nothing at all compared with the dreams that she was having now. In the dreams that came to her now she would be copulating or trying to copulate. Sometimes she was prevented by intruders or shifts of circumstances with utterly forbidden and unthinkable partners with fat squirmy babies, or patients in bandages, or her own mother. She would be slick with lust, hollow and groaning with it, and she would set to work with roughness and an attitude of evil pragmatism. Yes, this will have to do, she would say to herself, this will do if nothing better comes along. And this coldness of heart, this matter-of-fact depravity, simply drove her lust along. She woke up unrepentant, "'sweaty and exhausted, and lay like a carcass "'until her own self, her shame and disbelief, "'came pouring back into her. "'The sweat went cold on her skin. "'She lay there shivering in the warm night "'with disgust and humiliation. "'She did not dare go back to sleep. "'She got used to the dark "'and the long rectangles of the net-curtained windows "'filled with a faint light "'and the sick woman's breath grating and scolding "'and then almost disappearing.' If she were a Catholic, she thought, was this the sort of thing that could come out at confession? It didn't seem like the sort of thing she could even bring out in a private prayer. She didn't pray much any more, except formally, and to bring the experiences she had just been through to the attention of God seemed absolutely useless, disrespectful. He would be insulted. She was insulted by her own mind. Her religion was hopeful and sensible, and there was no room in it for any sort of rubbishy drama, such as the invasion of the devil into her sleep. The filth in her mind was in her, and there was no point in dramatizing it and making it seem important. Surely not. It was nothing, just the mind's garbage. In the little meadow between the house and the river bank, there were cows. She could hear them munching and jostling, feeding at night. She thought of their large, gentle shapes in there, with the money musk and chicory, the flowering grasses, and she thought, they have a lovely life, cows. It ends, of course, in the slaughterhouse. The end is disaster. For everybody, though, the same thing. Evil grabs us when we are sleeping. Pain and disintegration lie in wait. Animal horrors, all worse than you can imagine beforehand the comforts of bed and the cow's breath, the pattern of the stars at night, all that can get turned on its head in an instant. And here she was, here was Enid, working her life away pretending it wasn't so, trying to ease people, trying to be good. An angel of mercy, as her mother had said, with less and less irony as time went on. Patients and doctors, too, had said it. And all the time how many thought that she was a fool, The people she spent her labors on might secretly despise her, thinking they'd never do the same in her place, never be fool enough. No. Miserable offenders came into her head. Miserable offenders. Restore them that are penitent. So she got up and went to work, as far as she was concerned. That was the best way to be penitent. She worked very quietly but steadily through the night, washing the cloudy glasses and sticky plates that were in the cupboards and establishing order where there was none before. None. Teacups had sat between the ketchup and the mustard and toilet paper on top of a pail of honey. There was no waxed paper or even newspaper laid out on the shelves. Brown sugar in the bag was as hard as rock. It was understandable that things should have gone downhill in the last few months, but it looked as if there had been no care no organization here, ever. All the net curtains were gray with smoke, and the window panes were greasy. The last bit of jam had been left to grow fuzz in the jar, and the vile-smelling water that had held some ancient bouquet had never been dumped out of its jug. But this was a good house still, that scrubbing and painting could restore. Though what could you do about the ugly brown paint that had been recently and sloppily applied to the front room floor? When she had a moment later in the day, she pulled up the weeds out of Rupert's mother's flower beds, dug up the burdocks and twitch grass that were smothering the valiant perennials. She taught the children to hold their spoons properly and to say grace. Thank you for the world so sweet. Thank you for the food we eat. She taught them to brush their teeth and after that to say their prayers. God bless Mama and Daddy and Enid and Aunt Olive and Uncle Clive and Princess Elizabeth and Margaret Rose. After that, each added the name of the other. They had been doing it for quite a while when Sylvie said, What does it mean? Enid said, What does what mean? What does it mean, God bless? Enid made eggnogs, not flavoring them even with vanilla, and fed them to Mrs. Quinn from a spoon. She fed her a little of the rich liquid at a time, and Mrs. Quinn was able to hold down what was given to her in small amounts. If she could not do that, Enid spooned out flat, lukewarm ginger ale. The sunlight, or any light, was as hateful as noise to Mrs. Quinn by now. Enid had to hang thick quilts over the windows, even when the blinds were pulled down. With the fan shut off, as Mrs. Quinn demanded, the room became very hot, and sweat dripped from Enid's forehead as she bent over the bed, attending to the patient. Mrs. Quinn went into fits of shivering. She could never be warm enough. "'This is dragging out,' the doctor said. It must be those milkshakes you're giving her, keeping her going. Eggnogs, said Enid, as if it mattered. Mrs. Quinn was often now too tired or weak to talk. Sometimes she lay in a stupor, with her breathing so faint and her pulse so lost and wandering that a person less experienced than Enid would have taken her for dead. But at other times she rallied, wanted the radio on, then wanted it off. She knew perfectly well who she was still and who Enid was, and she sometimes seemed to be watching Enid with a speculative or inquiring look in her eyes. Colour was long gone from her face and even from her lips, but her eyes looked greener than they had in the past, a milky cloudy green. Enid tried to answer the look that was bent on her. Would you like me to get a priest to talk to you? Mrs. Quinn looked as if she wanted to spit. Do I look like a mick? she said. A minister, said Enid. She knew that this was the right thing to ask, but the spirit in which she asked it was not right. It was cold and faintly malicious. No, this was not what Mrs. Quinn wanted. She grunted with displeasure. There was some energy in her still, and Enid had the feeling that she was building it up for a purpose. Do you want to talk to your children? she said, making herself speak compassionately and encouragingly. Is that what you want? "'No. Your husband? Your husband will be here in a little while.' Enid didn't know that for sure. Rupert arrived so late some nights after Mrs. Quinn had taken the final pills and gone to sleep. Then he sat with Enid. He always brought her the newspaper. He asked what she wrote in her notebooks. He noticed that there were two, and she told him. One for the doctor, with a record of blood pressure and pulse and temperature, a record of what was eaten— vomited, excreted, medicines taken, some general summing up of the patient's condition. In the other notebook, for herself, she wrote many of the same things, though perhaps not so exactly, but she added details about the weather and what was happening all around, and things to remember. For instance, I wrote something down the other day, she said, something that Lois said. Lois and Sylvie came in when Mrs. Green was here, and Mrs. Green was mentioning how the berry bushes were growing along the lane and stretching across the road, and Lois said, it's like in Sleeping Beauty, because I'd read them the story. I made a note of that. Rupert said, I'll have to get after those berry canes and cut them back. Enid got the impression that he was pleased by what Lois had said, and by the fact that she had written it down but it wasn't possible for him to say so. One night, he told her that he would be away for a couple of days at a stock auction. He had asked the doctor if it was all right, and the doctor had said to go ahead. That night, he had come before the last pills were given, and Enid supposed that he was making a point of seeing his wife awake before that little time away. She told him to go right into Mrs. Quinn's room, and he did, and shut the door after him. Enid picked up the paper and thought of going upstairs to read it, but the children probably weren't asleep yet. They would find excuses for calling her in. She could go out on the porch, but there were mosquitoes at this time of day, especially after a rain like the afternoons. She was afraid of overhearing some intimacy or perhaps the suggestion of a fight than having to face him when he came out. Mrs. Quinn was building up to a display of that Enid felt sure. And before she made up her mind where to go, she did overhear something not the recriminations or, if it was possible, the endearments, or perhaps even weeping, that she had been half expecting, but a laugh. She heard Mrs. Quinn weakly laughing, and the laughter had the mockery and satisfaction in it that Enid had heard before, but also something she hadn't heard before, not in her life, something deliberately vile. She didn't move, though she should have, and she was at the table still, She was still there staring at the door of the room when he came out a moment later. He didn't avoid her eyes, or she his. She couldn't, yet she couldn't have said for sure that he saw her. He just looked at her and went on outside. He looked as if he had caught hold of an electric wire and begged pardon. Who of? That his body was given over to this stupid catastrophe. The next day, Mrs. Quinn's strength came flooding back in that unnatural and deceptive way that Enid had seen once or twice in others. Mrs. Quinn wanted to sit up against the pillows. She wanted the fan turned on. Enid said, What a good idea. I could tell you something you wouldn't believe, Mrs. Quinn said. People tell me lots of things, said Enid. Sure. Lies, Mrs. Quinn said. I bet it's all lies. You know Mr. Willans was right here in this room? Three. Mistake. Mrs. Quinn had been sitting in the rocker, getting her eyes examined, and Mr. Willans had been close up front of her, with the thing up to her eyes, and neither one of them heard Rupert come in, because he was supposed to be cutting wood down by the river. But he had sneaked back. He sneaked back through the kitchen, not making any noise, He must have seen Mr. Willans's car outside before he did that. Then he opened the door to this room just easy, till he saw Mr. Willans there on his knees, holding the thing up to her eye, and he had the other hand on her leg to keep his balance. He had grabbed her leg to keep his balance, and her skirt got scrunched up, and her leg showed bare. But that was all there was to it, and she couldn't do a thing about it. She had to concentrate on keeping still. So Rupert got in the room without either of them hearing him come in, and then he just gave one jump and landed on Mr. Willans like a bolt of lightning, and Mr. Willans couldn't get up or turn around. He was down before he knew it. Rupert banged his head up and down on the floor. Rupert banged the life out of him, and she jumped up so fast the chair went over, and Mr. Willens's box where he kept his eye things got knocked over, and all the things flew out of it. Rupert just walloped him, and maybe he hit the leg of the stove. She didn't know what. She thought, it's me next. But she couldn't get round them to run out of the room, and then she saw Rupert wasn't going to go for her after all. He was out of wind, and he just set the chair up and sat down in it. She went to Mr. Willans then and hauled him around, as heavy as he was, to get him right side up. His eyes were not quite open, not shut either, and there was dribble coming out of his mouth but no skin broke on his face or bruise, you could see. Maybe it wouldn't have come up yet. The stuff coming out of his mouth didn't even look like blood. It was pink stuff. And if you wanted to know what it looked like, it looked exactly like when the froth comes up when you're boiling the strawberries to make jam. Bright pink. It was smeared over his face from when Rupert had him face down. He made a sound, too, when she was turning him over. Glug, glug. That was all there was to it. Glug, glug and he was laid out like a stone. Rupert jumped out of the chair, so it was still rocking, and he started picking up all the things and putting each one back where it went into Mr. Willens's box, getting everything fitted in the way it should go, wasting the time that way. It was a special box lined with red plush and a place in it for each one of his things that he used, and you had to get everything in right or the top wouldn't go down. Rupert got it so the top went on, and then he just sat down in the chair again, and started pounding on his knees. On the table, there was one of those good-for-nothing cloths. It was a souvenir of when Rupert's mother and father went up north to see the Dion quintuplets. She took it off the table and wrapped it around Mr. Willens's head to soak up the pink stuff, and so they wouldn't have to keep on looking at him. Rupert kept banging his big, flat hands. She said, Rupert, we got to bury him somewhere. Rupert just looked at her, like to say, Why? She said they could bury him down in the cellar, which had a dirt floor. That's right, said Rupert. Where are we going to bury his car? She said they could put it in the barn and cover it up with hay. He said too many people came poking around the barn. Then she thought, put him in the river. She thought of him sitting in his car right under the water. It came to her like a picture. Rupert didn't say anything at first, so she went into the kitchen and got some water and cleaned Mr. Willans up so he wouldn't dribble on anything. The goo was not coming up in his mouth anymore. She got his keys, which were in his pocket. She could feel through the cloth of his pants the fat of his leg still warm. She said to Rupert, get moving. He took the keys. They hoisted Mr. Willans up, she by the feet and Rupert by the head, and he weighed a ton. He was like lead. But as she carried him, one of his shoes kind of kicked her between the legs, and she thought, there you are, you're still at it, you horny old devil. Even his dead old foot giving her the nudge. Not that she ever let him do anything, but he was always ready to get a grab if he could. Like grabbing her leg up under her skirt when he had the thing to her eye, and she couldn't stop him, and Rupert had to come sneaking in and get the wrong idea over the door sill and through the kitchen, and across the porch and down the porch steps, all clear. But it was a windy day, and first thing, the wind blew away the cloth she had wrapped over Mr. Willens' face. Their yard couldn't be seen from the road. That was lucky. Just the peak of the roof and the upstairs window. Mr. Willens' car couldn't be seen. Rupert had thought up the rest of what to do. Take him to Jutland, where it was deep water and the track going all the way back and it would could look like he just drove in from the road and mistook his way. Like he turned off on the Jutland Road, maybe it was dark, and he just drove into the water before he knew where he was at. Like he just made a mistake. He did. Mr. Willans certainly did make a mistake. The trouble was it meant driving out their lane and along the road to the Jutland Turn. But nobody lived down there, and it was a dead end after the Jutland Turn, so just the half mile or so to pray you never met anybody. Then Rupert would get Mr. Willans over in the driver's seat and push the car right off down the bank into the water. Push the whole works down into the pond. There was going to be a job to do that, but Rupert at least was a strong bugger. If he hadn't been so strong, they wouldn't have been in this mess in the first place. Rupert had a little trouble getting the car started because he had never driven one like that. But he did and got turned around and drove off down the lane with Mr. Willans kind of bumping over against him. He had put Mr. Willens' hat on his head, the hat that had been sitting on the seat of the car. Why take his hat off before he came into the house? Not just to be polite, but so he could easier get a clutch on her and kiss her. If you could call that kissing, all that pushing up against her with the box still in one hand and the other grabbing on and sucking away at her with his dribbly old mouth, sucking and chewing away at her lips and her tongue and pushing himself up at her, in the corner of the box, sticking into her and digging her behind. She was so surprised, and he got such a hold, she didn't know how to get out of it, pushing and sucking and dribbling and digging into her and hurting her all at the same time. He was a dirty old brute. She went and got the quintuplets' cloth, where it had blown onto the fence. She looked hard for blood on the steps or any mess on the porch or through the kitchen, but all she found was in the front room, also some on her shoes. She scrubbed up what was on the floor and scrubbed her shoes, which she took off, and not till she had all that done did she see a smear right down her front. How did she come by that? And the same time she saw it, she heard a noise that turned her to stone. She heard a car, and it was a car she didn't know, and it was coming down the lane. She looked through the net curtain, and sure enough, a new-looking car and dark green. Her smeared down front and shoes off and the floor wet. She moved back where she couldn't be seen, but she couldn't think of where to hide. The car stopped, and a car door opened, but their engine didn't cut off. She heard the door shut, and then the car turned around, and she heard the sound of it driving back up the lane, and she heard Lois and Sylvie on the porch. It was the teacher's boyfriend's car. He picked up the teacher every Friday afternoon, and this was a Friday So the teacher said to him, Why don't we give these ones a lift home? They're the littlest and they've got the farthest to go and it looks like it's going to rain. It did rain too. It had started by the time Rupert got back, walking home along the riverbank. She said, A good thing, it'll muddy up your tracks when you want to push it over. He said he'd took his shoes off and worked in his sock feet. So you must have got your brains going again, she said. Instead of trying to soak the stuff out of that souvenir cloth, or the blouse she had on, she decided to burn the both of them in the stove. They made a horrible smell, and the smell made her sick. That was the whole beginning of her being sick. That and the paint. After she cleaned up the floor, she could still see where she thought there was a stain. So she got the brown paint left over from when Rupert painted the steps, and she painted over the whole floor. That started her throwing up, leaning over and breathing in that paint. And the pains in her back. That was the start of them, too. After she got the floor painted, she just about quit going into the front room. But one day, she thought she had better put some other cloth on that table. It would make things look more normal. If she didn't, then her sister-in-law was sure to come nosing around and say, Where's that cloth Mom and Dad brought back the time they went to see the quince? If she had a different cloth on, she could say, Oh, I just felt like a change. But no cloth would look funny. So she got a cloth Rupert's mother had embroidered with flower baskets and took it in there and she could still smell the smell. And there on the table was sitting the dark red box with Mr. Willens's things in it and his name on it and it had been sitting there all the time. She didn't even remember putting it there or seeing Rupert put it there. She had forgot all about it. She took that box and hid it in one place and then she hid it in another. She never told where she hid it and she wasn't going to. She would have smashed it up, but how do you smash all those things in it? Examining things. Oh, Mrs., would you like me to examine your eyes for you? Just sit down here, and just you relax, and you just shut the one eye and keep the other one wide open. Wide open now. It was like the same game every time, and she wasn't supposed to suspect what was going on, and when he had the thing out looking in her eye, he wanted her to keep her panties on, him the dirty old cuss, puffing away, getting his fingers slicked in and puffing away her, not supposed to say anything till he stops and gets the looker thing packed up in his box and all. And then she's supposed to say, oh, Mr. Willens, now, how much do I owe you for today? And that was the signal for him to get her down and thump her like an old billy goat, right on the bare floor to knock her up and down and try to bash her into pieces, dingy on him like a blowtorch. How'd you like that? Then it was in the papers. Mr. Willans found, drowned They said his head got bunged up knocking against the steering wheel. They said he was alive when he went in the water. What a laugh. Mm, okay, there we go. Wasn't that fantastic? Don't you want to know what's going to happen next? We are cooking with gas. Or we're cooking with our slow cooker. Our Monrovian slow cooker. We've got about six hours in there so far. A couple more. And this thing is really going to be a sumptuous meal. I can't wait. Speaking of which, if you'd like to be a sumptuous meal or have a sumptuous meal or contribute to a Well, sorry. If you'd like to do a little cooking, how about that? None of this is really working out, is it? It's not a great segue, I'm afraid. As a segue, it's more like word a seg wrong way, a seg wrong way down a one-way street. So I'll just say it straight out. If you would like to help support the show, you can visit patreon.com/literature or historyofliterature.com/shop. If you'd like to learn more about the show, we're on Facebook and Twitter. Twitter is the Jack Wilson and Literature SC for Mike's handle. And we're at historyofliterature.com and an older website, jackwilson.com and Facebook. What is Facebook? I don't even know. Facebook.com slash historyofliterature, I think. We are located wherever you get your favorite podcasts, which is also a good place to rank, review, and subscribe. Our rousing conclusion to the Alice Monroe story is coming up in just a couple of days, so please come back for that. You won't want to miss it. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.